0: apocalyptic news of the environmental crisis are becoming so common these days that they barely register anymore. Wildfires, record-breaking heat waves, polar caps melting. It's becoming increasingly difficult to argue that we are not living on the dying planet. In just a few weeks, a new COP will be held in Cairo. Though if we think of the past 26 climate conferences, there doesn't seem to be room for much optimism. At the same time, People are more aware than ever about the severity of the climate emergency. Students walked out in unprecedented numbers for Fridays for Future, and the climate crisis is now a key issue for voters around the world. But is this enough? Are we doing all we can and all we should to prevent catastrophe? I'm Jimena Ledgard, and I am a host of the New Books Network. In this episode, I spoke to Andreas Malm, author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, published by Verso Books, and discussed the provocative premise of his book, a rallying cry and a literal call to arms for the environmental movement. Hi, Andreas. Uh, I was wondering if you could begin by just introducing yourself and your experience within the climate movement and how this book came to be?
2: Well, yeah, so, I mean, the... (laughs) The the point of departure for all these debates about tactics for the climate movement has to be the state of affairs on this planet. And the state of affairs isn't very good. It's looking very bad. All the trends are still in the wrong direction. Perhaps not all the trends, but most of them, the really significant determinant ones. For instance, last year we had the largest increase in CO2 emissions ever recorded in history so that means that after 26 cops what is it now six or seven ipcc assessment reports after 1.2 degrees of global warming and immeasurable suffering among the most affected people in areas we saw the largest increase ever recorded in human history of CO2 emissions. And uh, this year we have seen the big oil and gas companies swimming in a waterfall of profits that, you know, of a kind that hasn't been seen perhaps in the whole history of capitalism. Saudi Aramco, the largest oil and gas company, the other month posted what's believed to be the largest quarterly profit ever. So these companies have. Uh, Abundant amounts of profit that they reinvest in new pipelines, oil fields, gas terminals, power plants, platforms, all the kind of fossil fuel installations that we cannot have any longer. And the logically avoidable, unavoidable conclusion, it seems to me here, is that the climate movement hasn't yet done enough and we need to step up the struggle and escalate and this is now a very common sentiment in the climate movement in the global north i'm i'm restricting myself to the global north here for various reasons uh partly in response to to your your second question my own experience of climate activism is restricted to northern europe because that's where i live i haven't uh, been flying to uh, to remote distant parts of the world to engage in climate activism but what, what what i've done is primarily in sweden and in germany and some other countries in, in in europe um i'm i should say i should point out that i'm not an activist any longer in the sense that i'm not an organizer i'm not i'm not active on a continuous day-to-day basis in any activist community because i, I don't really have one where i live but i i engage in kind of ad hoc climate activism in the sense that i I participate in climate actions and climate camps and demonstrations and various types of direct actions when I have the opportunity to. Yeah, but there, there was a time in my life when I was very much of an organizer for a few years, but it's it's some time back now.
0: So I want to start this interview by grounding it on the most recent events. I know you wrote How to Blow Up a Pipeline right before the pandemic struck and after the wave of Extinction Rebellion protests in 2019. Mm. Uh, but just a couple of days ago, two young activists from Just Stop Oil threw canned tomato soup against a glass Van Gogh painting in a perfect example of non-violent protest, even making sure that the painting was not harmed at all. And I think you could argue that as a communications or publicity stunt, it was quite effective. I, I can't remember the last time an environmental protest was discussed so widely. But it also seemed like lots of people failed to grasp the connection between the action and the issue at stake. And as an actual disruption of the extractive capitalist machinery, it was obviously non-existent. Could you provide some analysis or insights into these actions? Since I'm guessing all listeners are aware of it through the arguments that you developed throughout your book? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah I, I, I have to confess that I myself have mixed feelings about this particular action, and when I first heard about it, my initial response was, oh no, not again. This this sort of action against a target that is harmless, innocent, perhaps even benevolent. I mean, if you look into Van Gogh as a painter and his relation to fossil fuels, he actually started drawing and sketching when he was living among poor coal miners in the coal, coal districts of Belgium and his very first works are very gloomy descriptions of landscapes uh, sullied and way down and people you know reeling under the burden of coal so uh, he's, he's by no means an enemy of the climate movement so it seems a little bit flippant to attack a work by him uh, on the other hand, you're, you're entirely right that what they did created a, a, an enormous amount of attention and made it impossible to miss the message of Just Stop Oil, namely the UK government is about to license something like 100 new permits for oil exploration in the North Sea when we can have absolutely none. And uh, I, I mean, I'm... I'm in relatively close dialogue with um, some comrades from Just Stop Oil, and I'm consistently impressed by what they're doing. And I've been particularly impressed by how they have, unlike other campaigns in the UK, targeted very specifically and precisely the source of the problem, namely the, the processing and distribution of oil. <clears throat> and uh, they've done actions such as sabotaging petrol stations, blocking petrol stations and petrol transportation. Today, they kicked off an incredibly impressive action where two activists climbed up very, very high. Um mm, structures on a bridge and uh, closed off oil transportation for many hours at a very central node in this transportation hub in in the uk so just stop oil is clearly deploying a diversity of tactics where some actions are very narrowly targeting the source of the problem while others such as this van gogh stunt has no link to the Source of the problem, but uh, ironically, it's this kind of you know random targeting of a uh, of a painting that and they are explicit about this has no you know it, it, it's just completely indiscriminate uh, in a sense you know selection of a of a target just for maximum attention that created a much greater splash in media than what these other actions have done. Uh, I, uh, so I mean there might be uh, there might be reason to do what they're doing namely combining these kind of tactics uh, they when I when I discussed this with them uh, they they one organizer in particular what she told me is that how they think about these actions against targets with no organic link to the problem is that we sort of want to shatter the illusion of everyday life and its normality and you know break the spell or the mirage that things are can just continue as usual and it's like it's almost as if they want to disrupt anything and remind people everywhere whether they're at a football match or at a museum or on the way home that look you know we're gonna shake you until you wake up and make it impossible for you to ignore climate breakdown any longer the this the idea here is to make, to create a kind of generalized disorder or commotion, if you like, uh, in society to uh, f- yeah to force the climate issue onto the agenda by any means necessary, almost. And I mean, I I understand the rationale and the logic behind this kind of thinking, but I personally have to say that I find it much more much easier to explain to people sabotage that is directed against fossil fuels, fossil fuel installations and machinery powered by fossil fuels. And that, that it makes more sense generally and fits into another kind of, of political logic that I think is more uh, sensible.
0: I think you try to make this point about your book that awareness is not enough. There's been this idea that it's enough to make people aware of the problem, because if more people are aware of the problem, then something will change. Right. But decades of environmental activism have shown that this is actually not the case. And Mm -hmm. and to go back to the protests of Extinction Rebellion, they seemed very interesting because they were disrupting commerce. Right. And they were making capital flow and profit harder, which is a form of sabotage, even if you're not harming property. But in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, you argue that that is not enough, that in the tradition of the Luddites, we need to physically destroy the machinery upon which these activities rely on. Mm. Could you elaborate a bit more on how you distinguish actions like blockades, for example, and physical destruction of plants or machines?
2: Well, yeah, first of all, what I want to stress is that I'm not arguing that we should stop doing things like XR did in 2019 or Fighters for Future, that we should discontinue demonstrations, rallies, rallies, blockades, and all of these things. Uh, And I'm not arguing that everyone should ditch all of these other kinds of tactics and move into sabotage. My only argument is that the time might have come, and I actually think it has come, and it came quite a long ago, quite a long time ago, to to supplement what we're already doing with more militant tactics in the form of property damage, property destruction, things like that, <clears throat> and to add this as another component into our tactical repertoire. Um, and uh, th- there are many reasons for doing this. Many, many reasons. One is precisely to intervene in the investment trends, where it's still extremely profitable for private companies and state-owned companies as well, for that matter, to invest in fossil fuels. That's where they get most of their profits from, uh, if they're energy companies. And if you, on a significant scale, start attacking pipelines, new gas terminals, new... uh, oil installations of various kinds you can at least potentially establish a kind of disincentive against investments of these kind and send a signal to these investors that if you pour more money into these kind of installations that are burdening the planet with an intolerable weight you can't count on uh, having these machines uh, functional and untouched you have to be prepared that you might wake up one day to the news that what you have invested in, the fixed capital, has been destroyed. And we've already seen this year a couple of cases of actions of this kind that make investors pretty nervous. Uh, obviously it hasn't reached a scale where it would actually you know, change the balance or, or seriously alter the equation of, of how these investors think, but we must consider that as an option given the fact that states, governments around the world, are just continuing to abet and encourage these kind of investments. And if, if they do so, then it's incumbent on, on, on people outside of states to take matters into our own hands, because we can't just watch while this planet is going up in smoke. We can't just leave it to the investors, the, the rich people who make the decisions in these companies, to set this planet on fire because it, it, it creates profit for them. That's just unacceptable.
0: Yeah, and in that line, throughout how to blow up a pipeline, you revise several instances of victories in social movements and discuss how the element of property destruction or violence, if you will, has often been sanitized out of history. You mentioned the bombing by the suffragettes, for example, or the different flanks in the struggle for racial justice in the U.S. And you don't downplay nonviolent resistance, but you also uphold the importance of other means of resistance and other means of fighting back. Mm. Essentially, what you say, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's, this is not a question of either or, but that there is a need for a manifold s- strategy. And you talk, for example, and I quote, about the little unrequested assistance that Martin Luther King once needed. But do you think it's possible for these two perspectives Mm. to coincide within a unified movement? Uh, For example, there's been some pushback in the Global South to the Van Gogh action, which has been perceived as a form of privileged activism uh, by some people when environmental defenders are being killed every day. What do you think is a way out of this?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Well, uh, to begin with, I think If there is disagreement on tactics in the climate movement, that's a sign of health. Uh, One of the strange dimensions of the wave of mobilization in 2019 was the virtual consensus at that time around exclusively non-violent forms of civil disobedience. Uh, Social movements with a real force and capacity to change things always have diversities of tactics and virtually always have internal disagreements about what is the best way forward. And that's part of their internal dynamic. And the general pattern in history and in the contemporary era really is that if you see mass protests taking on a significant scale and amassing real social force, you see precisely this multiplicity or heterogeneity of Forms of action. Just look at what's going on in Iran right now, the glorious revolt after the murder of Masa Amini, where you see precisely a combination of entirely non violent actions, such as women taking off their hijabs and cutting their hair or giving the finger to pictures of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei. And you see very militant forms of confrontation with police forces, with the Basij, the paramilitary forces, and property destruction in the sense that activists consistently target and destroy symbols of the regime. And they, I mean, they fight with the cops intensely. If, to take another example, also from the global south, the the, the amazing uprising in Chile in, in 2019 that set off the whole. Uh, You know, process of a progressive change in that country began with students engaging in uh, property destruction in the in the in the subways in in uh, Santiago, where they smashed uh, the the machines for paying uh, uh, tic- for for tickets you know it was a protest against the spike in the in the fees for traveling that's that sparked the whole movement and they burned a lot of subway <laughs> trains and engaged in pretty extensive rioting and that was what triggered the whole outpouring of social revolt that fundamentally shook that country and led to the victory of uh, uh, of a leftist president uh, and it, you it's it's the same diversity in black lives matter in gilets the the yellow vests in movement after movement that really shakes things up and the climate movement i think is beginning to realize that this is what we need to
1: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail.
0: At the beginning of your book, you talk about the recent shift to anger and environmental activism. And I'm going to I'm going to quote you here. You write a darker undertone, a simmering anger, a sign of the intergenerational injustice at the heart of a climate breakdown. And you say this in regards to Greta Thunberg. And this underlines just how emotional activism can be and rightly so. Right, because activism is not an intellectual thought experiment, but rather the way through which we fight and we resist and we fight for our lives. But even within the simmering anger, as you say, you argue for intelligent sabotage, Mm -hmm. for being mindful of the harm that this sabotage can cause, and. For example, you just referred to the movement in Chile and other social movements. And I think, I think what they show is that even when there's anger and explosions and excess, movements have a way of self-regulating and resolving those tensions in a productive path. Chile is a very clear example of this, right? Things got very out of hand, bad. From that, stem negotiations and dialogue led by the social movements and mm-hmm. activists so why do you think the environmental movement in the global north has lacked th- this, let's call it, trust in its own people, in its own people knowing how to explode with anger, but also find a productive way out of that anger? And I wonder if you think this has something to do with class or yes. race. Yes,
2: yes, yes, Absolutely, yes. Yes, I, I mean... Uh... I I should say that I haven't done any research into this. I think that that research needs to be made. But I have my guesses, my hunches about why the climate movement, at least as it looked like in 2018-19 in the Global North, was so dogmatic about nonviolence in contradistinction to other movements that we've mentioned. And yeah, I do think that it fundamentally has to do with class and race. uh, And that... The caters or the the sort of leadership layers of the climate movement, as it looked back then, came from white middle classes, where there has been a predominant idea recently that social protest has to be completely peaceful and pretty well mannered and gentle and pure. And there is a there's in the environmental movement a fear almost of you know being contaminated or or you know soiled by anything that smacks of moral impurity and the idea seems to be that it's only if we stay purely peaceful that we uh, are as pure as we want the planet to be or something like that. Uh, And I think that if the climate movement is going to learn in the global north to articulate anger, and we know that anger is the emotion that drives social mobilization. I mean, social movements are fundamentally organized outpourings of rage. Then we need to do away with that dogma and make room for eruptions of anger on the streets Uh, And these will, uh, these tend to take the form of various kinds of confrontation with the existing order that includes property destruction.
0: I would like now to maybe shift the conversation into the question uh, of the intended audience of your book. As a reader from the Global South, it was pretty clear to me, or at least I was under the impression that the that the book speaks about and to the European and American environmental activists, Mm -hmm. uh, which indeed have chosen Mm nonviolence, not just as a strategy but as a moral principle for a very long time. But because a lot of resistance to extractive projects in the global south do involve sabotage and Mm property destruction and facing the Mm -hmm. police even at the risk of losing your own life, I wonder why you never seem to specifically address them as part of the environmental movement as you conceive it in your book.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a very good point. So, first of all, the reason for the focus on the movement in the global north is simply that this book was an outcome of the conjuncture of 2018-19. And it was my response or reaction to all that happened in those two years in europe in particular but to an extent in north america as well Uh, so um it 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 was it was an intervention into the uh, the discourse around tactics violence non-violence established in particular by extinction rebellion Uh, And yes, the intended audience was primarily the climate movement in the global north, as it looked in 2019. And to an extent, it still looks the same way in, in the global north. Of course, what happened between then and now was the pandemic that completely killed the momentum that we had back in 2019 but i mean the same the, the organizations are still active uh, the discourse has shifted but it's it's a, it's a movement uh, that that i know of personally because i've been part of it and it's one that i engage with what this book is not is it's not a comprehensive survey or discussion of the climate climate movement or environmental movement worldwide. So it doesn't have any investigations into forms of climate activism in Latin America, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, or North Africa, South Asia, and so on and so forth. And this is admittedly a, a very major weakness of the book, perhaps the biggest weakness uh, of them all. But uh, uh, of course, if if you want to have a an exhaustive discussion of what is going on around the world what people are doing to uh, try to stop fossil fuels and other kinds of extraction uh, then uh, you would need to go deeply into what's going on in in all of these parts of the global south and it's an incredibly variegated landscape you know i think i think when you talk about the global north versus the global south i think the global north is a much more monolithic it's not monolithic of course but it's more monolithic as an entity than the global south because the political landscape in much of latin america for instance is completely qualitatively different from what it is say in the persian gulf or in you know parts of the middle east i mean it couldn't be more different while the u.s and europe are f- relatively similar Uh, But it's, I mean, it's extremely hard to generalize about climate movements or climate activism in the the global south, because things are just so different from one region to another.
0: Andreas, um, I want to end this conversation by referring to a distinction that you make at the end of your book, because you say that even if all is lost, even if millions dying is inevitable. To fight is a way of affirming life. And it is an act of faith in history, in the belief that something will always come next and that we have to do the best possible we can do for that, for whatever that is. And, and you argue that this stands in opposition to the fatalism that turns death and suffering into an aesthetic experience, as you say. And I I would like to quote Rebecca Solnit here, who's an author that you reference in your book as well, who says, and I quote, Hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen, and that in this spaciousness of uncertainty there is room to act. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. Optimists think that We'll all be fine without our involvement. Pessimists take the opposite direction. Both excuse themselves from acting." So I would just like to end this conversation with the opportunity to to per- perhaps talk about what hope means to you, and if you think that hope is in itself a way of resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a very nice way of putting it, and uh, I I totally agree, of course, with the sentiment of the uh, quote from Solnit. Although I would probably say that I identify as a pessimist, and I don't think that pessimism is antithetical to action. I I'm you know I'm in line with Walter Benjamin, who has the idea of organized pessimism. Uh, you're you're pessimist in the sense that you realize that things are going very much in the wrong direction they're you know they're they're pointing towards hell and that is why we have to intervene and try to uh, pull the brake on this locomotive and jump off in time before it crashes into the abyss and uh, uh, revolutionary pessimism in that tra- tradition is premised on the insight that history itself if we don't disrupt it, has catastrophe as its as its logical endpoint, And that's why we have to uh, try to mobilize a great deal of force to change things. Um, Yeah. Uh, Optimism is the idea that things are going in the right direction and we are winning and, and time is on our side and we are floating with the current of history that was a position that the early working class movement took and uh, it didn't it, it didn't produce very good results it, made, it led to very major mistakes we don't need to go into, into the details but uh, in the in the current moment i do think that organized pessimism is the most reasonable position uh, and yes that includes a degree of hope uh, along the lines that Solnit sketches here that uh, we have to have hope that we can intervene and make a difference and that every little difference counts. And that is, I think, fundamentally the case, that every time you defeat the fossil fuel project, for instance, and have it cancelled, you've made a difference because it, every ton of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere will kill people and cause suffering. Conversely, every ton of CO2 that doesn't go into the atmosphere because we've managed to keep some fossil fuels in the ground reduces the damage and the harm that is being done so uh, every local victory uh, makes a difference we just need to you know amass accumulate these victories <laughs> build one victory on top of another and do it very quickly